0: welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 28, recorded on November 19th, 2017. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe, and happy Fedora 27 release
1: week to you. Yeah, this is the second Fedora release that's happened during the run of this show, so it means we must have been doing it for a while. But yeah, Fedora 27, there's not a massive amount to say, is there? They've revved a lot of the packages, but otherwise, there's nothing hugely new and outstanding about it, is there? This is a nice and steady
0: improvement over 26 to 27. You get GNOME 326, which brings in fractional high DPI scaling and the new fancy settings panel with lots of improvements. And you also get trim support for encrypted disks under Fedora. So nice workstation features, but maybe some of the more notable changes are on the server side. Yeah, it's all about modularity now. I know they've been working on modularity for a couple of releases and I'm a big fan of this because it allows users to have a more modular operating system which would include managing multiple components that maybe are on different life cycles so different versions of nginx or the database server than what is perhaps packaged upstream in the repository there's going to be a lot of additional work that goes into this but fedora 27 modular server beta is available now
1: and you updated your droplet didn't you
0: yeah, I have a I have a droplet that I update using DNF every single time. I wait because the Fedora project always releases a guide, and I just want to make sure I do exactly
1: right. And I think I'm three or four releases in now. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, well, that's the thing. If you're going to have a fairly short support window and release every six months, you need to make it solid each time. And Fedora has done that again. It's a solid release. It's not massively exciting, but to me, that's good. It shouldn't be exciting. It shouldn't be something that is causing you stress. It's new kernel, it's new packages, it's new version of GNOME on the desktop or new versions of whatever packages you need on the server, and it just works. I think it's also worth pointing out that there's a new release of the
0: Fedora Media Writer, and this thing's kind of cool because it's a great way to convert non-Linux users to Fedora. And it also, in this latest version, allows you to create bootable SD cards with Fedora for ARM devices like the Raspberry Pi, And there's a Mac version where it'll download the ISO automatically and write it to a USB stick under Mac OS. Makes it easy to switch a Mac user.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but then uh, would you really want to switch a Mac user to Fedora? (laughs) Isn't Fedora kind of more aimed at people who are familiar with Linux and developers, that kind of thing?
0: I don't know, Joe. I don't know. If you just want a really great, steady upstream development work environment it could be a pretty good way to reuse older MacBook hardware. I'm not saying go out and buy a TouchBook and uh, throw Fedora on there, but I'm saying you've got a 2013, 2015 MacBook Pro. You might at least want to try loading Fedora on there and see if you get new life out of the product. Well, you could do a lot worse. Well, in the category of doing a lot better, Firefox 57
1: is out, and it's a quantum leap in performance. Eh, Joe? (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. Yes, the new version, 57 Quantum. Now, I've been trying it out a little bit, but my wife has been trying it out more. And the first thing she said to me was, oh, they've made Firefox all different. Oh, I don't like this. But then she kind of tweaked it a little bit and got it looking a little bit better than it was out of the box. And I'm fairly happy with it. She's fairly happy with it. I just don't think that I would go so far as to say it is five times better than it was, five times faster than it was six months ago. It's certainly different. It's certainly a bit faster, but I just, I think that they're trying to hype this up a little bit more than it deserves. Well, surprise, surprise, Joe, I'm going to disagree.
0: I think at least as far as Firefox updates go, this is pretty much the biggest one since version one back in 2004. You've got the new UI, love it or hate it. I happen to think it's it's pretty good. You've got Google now as the default search provider in the US and in Canada. And they're shipping the new Stylo CSS engine, which takes advantage of multi-core hardware, so all of these things combined do seem to make it a pretty substantial competitive release. I I, I feel like performance-wise, it may be outclassing Chrome now. It's not necessarily using less
1: memory than it was in the past, but it feels like it's doing more with that memory. Well, yes, it is improved. There's no doubt about that. There have been significant improvements, and it, once you know about the technicalities of it, you can see how much effort's been put into it. However, Google Services. Now, this is not. Mozilla's fault, but try and interact with Google Maps, for example, in Firefox, and it's still a disaster. It's a little bit better than it was, but it used to just crash all the time. And so your only option was to use Chrome, basically, if you wanted to use Google Maps, especially if you're doing more than just looking up one thing quickly. And now it's a little bit better, but I asked my wife, she uses Google Maps all the time. I asked her to use Firefox for her, all the stuff she does maps with. And then uh, a day later, she's using Chrome again. I said, what happened? Well, it was a bit better, but it's still rubbish compared to Chrome. And and to me, that is the shadow. Chrome is the shadow that looms over this whole thing. I do agree. I'm back on Chrome for a few tasks myself,
0: having tried out 57 uh, since the hour it was released. And I, I really like it. It's now my casual go-to personal browser. Like my work browser is Chrome right now, and my personal daily driver is the new Firefox because I think it is really great. I particularly like how it performs under Linux. And I don't know, I think they're really nailing it. And I want to support Mozilla too, so I kind of want to at least be another user to stat out there that is, that is representing the Firefox flag. But I, I agree it's not 100%. They still have some progress to make. And Google's not sitting still with Chrome.
1: Yeah, but that's the thing. I'm sitting here using Firefox because I care about software freedom. And even though I know that Chrome is essentially better than Firefox, I'm still using Firefox because that's how much I care about it. But if you look at all the changes that Firefox has made or Mozilla have made with Firefox over the last few years, it is trying to catch up with Chrome, putting the tabs on top like with Chrome, and changing the UI generally to basically resemble Chrome. And they are chasing Chrome. And I I don't know whether I agree with that strategy because okay, crime has taken over in terms of market share, but should they be trying to ape them and copy them or should Mozilla be trying to forge their own path? I suppose they tried that with the um, uh, the, the privacy stuff and that we're not a huge corporation and we're not tracking you and all that stuff. And people kind of laughed at them. So they basically can't win at this point, can they? Well, I'll, I guess
0: my closing thoughts on this would be There is some legitimate concern to what you're saying. If they spend too much time and effort chasing Chrome, then they may not do enough of their own innovation. Looking back over the past several releases of Firefox, they've been making steady progress towards a pretty big technical goal. And you've been able to watch the technologies they've chosen to build these new tools and these new engines, and they're, they're the best stuff out there. And the, the processes that they've taken seem to be the best processes to build this stuff. And the way they're rolling it out seems to be a very safe, sane way to roll it out. And now that we've arrived here at 57 with all of these things coming together, I would argue that they may have a more technical superior implementation than Chrome does. And speaking to the UI, while they have some elements that seem like they are pulled from Chrome, I'm pretty sure that the Mozilla project did a lot of studying on the UI. They they write about that a little bit in their blog post, and they put some real human testing into this thing to make sure it was it was sort of the best of both worlds. So on both points, I see where you're coming from, but I think once we've arrived here, they've, they've handled it really well, and they've come out
1: with a product that's superior in a lot of ways. It just needs the rest of the web to catch up. Well, maybe, and the bottom line is that I am still using it because it is a truly free software browser, and that, to me, is the most important thing. So as long as they keep improving, then I'm definitely sticking with it. But if you don't like these huge changes, there is an option for you. Pale Moon is a fork of Firefox that strips out some of the bloat and stuff, and they have been working on a new... uh, Basilisk, I think is the the way you pronounce it, browser technology that is still using the old um, Zool plugins and things. So if you really don't like change, then do check out um, Pale Moon. And there's a link in the show notes, go to linuxactionnews.com slash 28. And you can follow that. And if you're fed up with the changes, then you can go back to how it used to be. In the theme of keeping things the way they
0: are and getting off my lawn, good news for me this week. There is some serious discussion of an Ubuntu Unity remix that's taking place on the Ubuntu Community Hub right now.
1: I always say to people, if there's one thing I love more than XFCE, that is choice. And I've never liked Unity. There's no point pretending otherwise. I never liked it. But I know there are a ton of people out there who love it. They used it as their daily driver for years. And now they're having to change to this Gnarum thing which, okay, it's a very good implementation of it, but some people just want to stay on Unity. And isn't this the brilliant thing about Linux? We're going to have, by the looks of things, this Unity flavor. And I know you've switched over to Unity recently, so you must be very excited about it. I am very pleased to see this. I
0: feel like it means I've made a good bet for at least the next couple of years. We'll see where things land after Wayland and all of those transitions are complete, but Right now, this is promising because it appears Canonical has given initial blessings on using the Ubuntu trademark. So that's one major step cleared right there. And if you look at the discussions taking place, it looks like there's also some pretty serious discussion on getting the Ubuntu Mate applications integrated with this Unity Remix. So instead of shipping GNOME 3 apps with the large client-side decorations that look a bit funky in Unity and have removed some functionality... They would go with the MATE applications, which just need a few different modifications that are pretty easy to make. Of course, what do I know? But they seem on the surface, having looked at the discussion, pretty straightforward. And now all of a sudden they'd be pretty well integrated with Unity. And then that would mean, of course, a wider adoption of these MATE applications, which means more bug submissions, more users, more code gets
1: developed. So it's better for Ubuntu MATE. It's better for the Unity remix as well. All this has been going down on the Ubuntu community hub, and one name popped up, Martin Wimpress, and he (laughs) is helping out with this. And that should tell you enough. He is the lead of Ubuntu Mate, and now that he's involved in helping them out, I think that really bodes well for it as a project, doesn't it? Having just the
0: help of Wimpy, his experience working on Ubuntu Mate, and perhaps being able to connect them with the right people could be extremely valuable. I think looking at this, it makes more sense than it might initially seem on the surface. 1604 is going to be around for years, and as part of their commitment to 1604, Canonical will be maintaining Unity, even after 1804 is released, and it will be shipping in the 1804 repositories. So there will still be maintenance happening to Compiz and Unity, even though they've switched to GNOME because it's shipping in these LTS distributions. So this is the perfect opportunity for a community to come along and take this code, which is in maintenance mode but not yet abandoned, and start contributing real value to it, adding these MATE applications, which are continuing to see new feature enhancements and continued code improvement,
1: and you end up with something that could be a very popular Ubuntu Remix. Yeah, and potentially although it's early days, but potentially an official flavor. I would love to see it be an official flavor and get all the support that that entails. Because as I said, there are thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people who are used to using Unity, who would love to have an officially supported flavor of Ubuntu that lets them just keep doing what they were doing, because it was basically feature complete. Okay, it could do with some high DPI improvements, maybe a little bit, and the Wayland stuff, of course. But if there's people working on it, then why not let it live alongside GNOME?
0: Yeah, and I also think there's a place for Unity with an updated theme, and it just maintains working on X for years, because there's, I think, a multi-year transition coming to Wayland, and there will be some people on enterprise-grade workstations and production-grade workstations that opt to run X for a little bit longer, and why not have a first-class desktop
1: experience on that? Yeah, totally. And it's funny you mentioned the Mate applications. It looks like Zubuntu is going to be using the Mate applications as well. I think
0: that is also an extremely good development because now you've got these three distributions that are all sharing a common base and they're all sharing a common set of applications. They all have about the same goals in mind about a traditional desktop paradigm. And three distributions using the same set of applications, at least three, it's going to be more than that, is it going to be great for the end
1: users. I don't know about unity having a traditional paradigm i mean i suppose it's traditional by now but it's kind of the alternative well it's funny like because uh i didn't think that about the music i listened
0: to in high school and i turned on an oldies radio station and they're playing the oldies and it was high school hits joe eventually the even the new stuff turns into the old stuff
1: yeah that's true
0: Get yourself some new service over at Ting. Go to last.ting.com. It's a smarter way to do mobile. The average Ting bill is just $23 per month. (laughs) It's, It's really something compared to the traditional phone plans here in the States. You just pay for what you use, your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. The line is $6 a month plus Uncle Sam's cut, nationwide coverage here in the States, no contract, nor the termination fee. They have GSM and CDMA networks. I brought a test CDMA phone ages ago, an old clunker, got it on the Ting network, and was immediately impressed that the $25 credit covered more than my first month. And it's been a Ting relationship ever since. Get started by going to last.ting.com and I'm going to point you to their blog this week. If you're trying to educate friends, family, extended loved ones, whoever it might be about the woes of fishing, they have a great write-up that you can find on their blog and share with those that are concerned and help them understand the problem of fishing. I know know we don't need the blog, but we all know somebody that does. Start by going to last.ting.com.
1: Okay, well, just a quick mention of the 4.14 release of the kernel, which there's a lot of technical stuff going on in here, but I don't want to get too bogged down in that. To me, what's really interesting here is this is the kernel that's going to be around for six years because it's the LTS, the new six-year LTS. It's going to be potentially in mobile devices, embedded devices, IoT. This is a kernel that we're going to see for a long time, I think. Yeah, that is the big news about
0: this release is this is the one that will be sticking around. This is the one that will eventually ship on Project Treble devices for Android, I believe. But it also means now that 4.14 is out, the real fun can begin with
1: 4.15, which may see entirely new architecture support added. Yeah, RISC-V, the totally open architecture, which I've been following for at least a couple of years now. And we're starting to see development boards coming out. And it would be absolutely amazing to see mainline support for it.
0: Yeah. I, I don't know what use cases these chips are going to fill yet, but I know that there's already an industry ready to go because there has been a steady march towards this code in the Linux kernel. Now, this is just really the beginning phase of it too because they're still building all of the hardware around these chips. That means they still need to write device drivers. But the initial architecture
1: is landing in 4.15. Yeah, and if you look at the Linux kernel mailing list, Torvalds himself hasn't said anything terribly bad about it. So that's a pretty good sign. (laughs) Um, There's a few issues that they need to iron out to to get the support into 4.15. But I think it's looking good, fingers crossed. And then there's no looking back from there. Something Linus did talk about was this zero-day bot that's been
0: getting even better, as he puts it, and making it more and more useful. I did a little digging before the show, and it looks like an Intel project that's this multi-headed bot that scans all the different branches of development of the Linux kernel, finds problems... And then when it does, it emails the mailing list. And when it doesn't find a problem, it then moves it along the testing stage to actually execute it and build on physical hardware and then generates a whole other series of reports and is doing this over and over again. I'm going to try to dig into it more, try to get links to the code because I think the bot and all that stuff is open source. And I'll
1: try to do like a little mini report in this week's Linux Unplugged. Well, ARM devices are definitely going to benefit from this long-term support kernel for six years an arm is something that red hat is seriously thinking about these days this is red hat's first commercial
0: support for arm architecture it's red hat enterprise linux 7.4 now they've been testing this for years i think since like 2015 with a development preview but now they're now they're pretty much ready to say okay we're going to ship it and we're going to support it for years hello world and meet red hat enterprise linux 7.4 for arm devices and the timing of this is pretty good because there's recently been several large announcements, big, big announcements by Cray and Qualcomm for big
1: server-grade systems with lots of ARM cores on there. We've been talking about it for years, haven't we? This idea of the data center moving to ARM, and now it seems to finally be happening. Everyone knows ARM chips have the advantage of lower power consumption and less
0: heat output, but the other advantage is you can slice and dice how these cores are assigned, and you can purpose-build applications for these cores, and you can stack a lot more of these ARM servers in a rack than you can x86 servers. It almost feels like this is inevitable, and Red Hat's trying to get there and and offer an enterprise-grade product before it's too late in some cases, because there's other distributions that don't quite have that commercial
1: enterprise prestige, but they've been there now for a while. Well, yeah, look at Canonical and Ubuntu. That's been available for ARM for a long time. So the question is, why has Red Hat taken so long about this? I guess they took their time. They've been testing it since 2015. But the
0: enterprise space isn't necessarily known for moving too fast.
1: Yeah, I suppose a company the size of Canonical can kind of afford to be more agile and move more quickly, whereas Red Hat has to bide its time. And I think it was a little bit overdue. But now they're seriously moving into this space, you know, they will have tested it properly. And it feels like Now is about the right time because we didn't really have the hardware for the data center before now, and now it's starting to appear with the Qualcomm stuff. So they're probably spot on with their strategy. There's a reason they are the biggest Linux company, to be fair. On the total opposite end
0: of the enterprise market, you have OnePlus. They move quick and sometimes things slip through the cracks and they're back in the news again with a pretty
1: major backdoor. Yeah, Engineer Mode, which is an APK that they left on some builds of their operating system for their various devices that essentially allows root access over ADB. Now, it's not quite the big story that some people made it out to be because they were assuming that there'd be remote access here. No, the reality is that you need to have enabled USB debugging and you need to have physical access to the device, which, as we know, if you've got physical access to any computing device, all bets are off. But either way, this doesn't look good for them. This comes on the back of, uh, a couple of months ago, some metrics they were collecting that people weren't happy about. And this is supposed to be a brand aimed at kind of developer types, tinkerers, people who like custom ROMs, people who want low price hardware with good specs, geeky people, essentially, not your kind of Samsung users, the typical kind of normals. And so they need to be careful with this stuff, really. Even if this turns out to be just incompetence, which to be honest, I think it is. I don't think there was any malice intended here. I think it was just um, debugging software that they forgot to remove. It's, it's just not a good look for a brand which is associated with, well, people like us who like custom ROMs and stuff. There's three elements to this story that I find intriguing.
0: Element number one is this is a diagnostic and testing application made by Qualcomm. It's not made by OnePlus, it's made by Qualcomm, and it's something that they build for OEMs to easily test all hardware components of the device. And they just left it on the image of the OnePlus 3 1 plus 3T, and the 1 plus 5. So that's element number one. Element number two, this quote-unquote backdoor was discovered by a Twitter user who goes by the name Elliot Anderson, which those of you who are Mr. Robot fans may recognize that name. And then element number three, this Elliot Anderson on Twitter discovered that there was a password needed by engineer mode in order to escalate the ADB privileges And mind you, this is a password set by Qualicom employees. And this is a Twitter account named Elliot Anderson. And the password? The password was Angela, which those of you that watch Mr. Robot will know that Angela is a relevant character in the Mr. Robot series.
1: Yeah, Elliot's oldest friend.
0: Right, so Qualicom happens to have some Mr. Robot fans, and then the Twitter user outing this entire thing happens to have a Mr. Robot handle, it almost feels like an inside leak because there's no obvious source from where the password came. The leaker hasn't given that information,
1: doesn't disclose where the password came from, just kind of figured it out and then tweeted it. But the curious thing is that Qualcomm denies any involvement. They say that okay, it's based on some code they wrote, but it is so different at this point that they basically didn't write it. So it it just the mystery gets even deeper. And then it gets even weirder that there's some other binaries on there that are basically collecting Wi-Fi and Bluetooth connection information and logging that.
0: But functionally, this just turns out to be a big bonus for owners of these OnePlus phones, because it's almost impossible to execute this thing remotely. And you have to implicitly turn on USB debugging on your phone. So really, OnePlus 3, 3T, and 5 owners can now get root access without ever having to unlock their phone. They just got a simple way to root their devices. That's the functional aspect to the story.
1: Yeah, without having to wipe all the data that goes along with unlocking the bootloader, which is nice for some people. I mean, it's the first thing I do, so it doesn't really bother me. And as a OnePlus 3T owner, I'm not affected by any of this because I'm running Lineage. But yeah, there's the kind of a silver lining to all of this, isn't there? Yeah, I think so. If I was an owner of one of these devices, I'd jump on this right now before they pushed
0: out an update to remove this thing.
1: <laughs> yeah. But it, it just kind of goes to show how shady the whole OEM version of Android thing is. They all have their own stuff baked into it, and you've just got no idea what's going on. And I honestly don't think there's any malice here. I think it's just incompetence. I think they've just left stuff on there that they shouldn't have done, and people are just not doing their jobs properly. And the uh, same with the logging stuff. I don't really think they've got a massive interest in collecting user data. It's, it's just sloppy development. And it just goes to show, man, if you're running proprietary software or software with huge proprietary elements to it, you just can't trust what's going on with it. So just lineage all the way for me. Thank you very much. Sloppy and incompetent.
0: Just the aspects you want from your phone vendor. That really inspires confidence. But I suppose you only learn by doing the OnePlus 5T, I think, was just announced. I had to be honest, Joe, it looks like a pretty good phone. But it does give me a little bit of pause because this is the second story in less than a month for them.
1: Yeah. It's funny, you're the second iPhone user that has said to me they're tempted by the 5T with its 6-inch display. And it's all looking pretty good. But I'm a couple of versions behind now, and I'm I'm happy enough with the 3T yeah if yeah if i was going to suggest a phone to anyone it'd be that 3t it's a great phone it's got the fingerprint reader and everything first class lineage support right you don't really need this new phone as far as i'm concerned but if i had all the money in the world i'd, I'd seriously consider it it's nice to
0: see something taking on that nexus line when the pixel came out and the nexus line ended the pixel was considerably more expensive and it makes me less inclined to want to tinker with it. It makes it less of a community-supported phone because they're so expensive. And the OnePlus phones have really kind of stepped up to that role. So I hope they sort all this out because I think long-term, they'd probably be the Android phone of choice for myself. In the meantime, guys, keep checking back every single week. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. And you can support the whole network and this here show at our Patreon page, patreon.com
1: slash jupitersignal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you
0: for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later.